Crossway Church Sermon Audio. This is the third now and final sermon in the sermon series that we've been in, The Sweet Sorrow of Repentance. And we've been examining this much-needed topic, this topic of repentance. These past two weeks, Peter and Steve have taken us to the nature of repentance, what is true biblical repentance. They've, they've shown us what is the need for human repentance. What is the need? And they've also shown us the who of repentance and the why of the repentance that we're called to, and also the how. How repentance brings us relief, it brings us joy, brings us life. Repentance is the faithful humbling of Jesus' disciples as they put away all the desires and fears that keep them from loving him and following him more closely. So repentance is the putting off of the Christian life. It is pushing off those things that threaten our love and our followership to Jesus Christ. This is an ongoing necessity, is it not? This is something you need today. This is something that I need today. Repentance. So who wouldn't want to repent if repentance means that we gain more room in our hearts for the happiness of Jesus Christ while removing unholy, caustic things? Who wouldn't want repentance if that's what it is? My garage is a terrible mess. It's terrible. I constantly am fighting with it. It's filled with stuff that has either no value or little value at all. And somehow it's precious to someone, so that's how it's stuck and remains in a big mass in my garage. Now, if I was offered several pallets piled high with gold ingot, and if I was offered a trailer full of precious stones, what a joy, what a delight it would be to make that garage cleaner and clearer than the day it was even first built, to make space, right? To make clear the way for gold and precious gems. And that is repentance, is it not? This too is repentance. We clear the clutter. We clear the filth of our sinful desires and our fears, our habits, and also our sinful avoidance of things. We clear the garage of our hearts. And for the believer, we're driven. We're absolutely driven out of love for Jesus to repentance because we know that it is Jesus himself by the spirit who takes up residence in our hearts. So that's what drives repentance. It's love. We're driven. So I pray that all here who have heard over these past two weeks, who have heard the call to repent, you've heard the spirit of God say to you, prepare him room that you have made preparations that your attitude towards repentance by the grace of God has been shifted to honor Jesus and to see it for what it is, a sweet sorrow. However, I do think we've all experienced the kind of repentance that leaves us discouraged. It leaves us in a place of being stuck. There's this sin problem that you or I might struggle with. It's a habit that troubles us terribly. It won't go away. We hate it, and we hate that we continually have to deal with it, that we're still to this day struggling with it. Some of us might even wonder, am I repenting at all? And what does this reveal about my so-called repentance? If I keep doing this, 
if I keep falling? Am I truly sorry for my sin if I keep coming back to it? What is wrong with me, you might ask. You might even say, why do I keep doing the things that I hate? And why isn't repentance working? Why am I not changing my mind in the course of my behavior for the glory of God? Why do I constantly come back to my garage to feel cramped with fears and desires that are not from the Lord? These are questions certainly each of us need to wrestle with. And I think to better understand our, to understand our breakdowns with repentance, I want to go to this text this morning. And a little brief uh, context before we dive into chapter 7, just to set the stage a bit. Paul writes this second letter to the Corinthians as a follow-up, obviously, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a very strongly worded letter from Paul where much of that letter is spent rebuking and correcting the Corinthian church for their tolerance of sin, for their failing to repent of what should have been obvious to them. So in the second letter, particularly in chapter 7 of the second letter of Corinthians, Paul, we find Paul acknowledging just how difficult his first letter must have been to receive. He acknowledges that they had strong disciplinary measures for them, that it might have tasted like strong medicine that it may have even led them to grief. And we'll read these words here, that Paul reminds them that even in the strength of his medicine, his words, his concerns, even if it would bring to grief, it is for the purpose of their good. It's that they would know the life and the grace of Christ through repentance. And certainly... We'll see that right now. So chapter 7, verses 1, and we'll end at verse 13. But we're going to be focusing especially on verse 10. Okay? So chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I see that, it, that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a, a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, not, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. This is God's word to us. So we're going to endeavor to work briefly through this text to understand our breakdowns in repentance. We're going to sit under this, this word, in particular verse 10, where we're told that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is the theme I proposed for this morning, and it's keep repenting. Cleanse yourself from sin for the sake of God and your joy in him. Keep repenting. Cleanse yourself from sin for the sake of God and your joy in him. And there's going to be two points that we're we'll looking at. Our first being don't be fooled by godly, I'm sorry, don't be fooled by worldly grief. And our second point will be pursue the grief that loves the Lord. So let's look. Don't be fooled by worldly grief. In the scheme of repentance, in Paul's estimation, there are only two types of grief that lead either to true repentance in life or to further self-deception and death. In this text, he makes it very plain. The problem is that these two griefs are not very different at first. You can have two people, two very different people, who are caught in their sin. They, they both shed tears. There's weeping. There can even be moaning and crying they both confess their sin and begin to receive help and counsel from other Christians. One person, however, is grieving for an entirely different reason than the other. But it's not very clear or obvious. So what is the difference between worldly grief, as Paul calls it, and godly grief? And how do we spot it? That's, that's what we're driving at here. So let's zoom in on this concept of grief to determine what exactly is the difference between these two paths. And let me tell you, there's a universe of difference between them. Though they appear similar at first, there is a universe. There are universes apart. Worldly grief is the kind of sorrow that comes from sin, that comes from a soul that is firmly entrenched in worldly concerns. So if I can say it this way, your feet are planted on worldly concerns. And when sin happens with all of its consequences, our struggle with our sin is limited to our worldly concerns, discomforts, the disadvantages, the, the, the bitternesses, the strife that sin creates for us. It's worldly concerns. That's what worldly grief, as Paul says it, it's concerned about worldly things. It's entrenched in worldly things. That's what makes it worldly grief. Esau, in chapter 12 of Hebrews, is highlighted as a character who demonstrates for us this kind of worldly grief. You don't have to turn there, but if you read this section of Hebrews, he's shown as an example of someone who sorrows, weeps loudly over his sin. But yet, it was without repentance. It says in verse 17 of chapter 12, Esau, it is written, was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, you might remember the story from Genesis 25, the story of Esau and his brother, Jacob. 
how they sought from their father Isaac the blessing. And you remember the moment where in chapter 25, Esau sells his birthright, right, for a bowl of lentil soup. I'm sure it was delicious. However, was it worth the birthright? Was it worth giving up, which is infinitely more precious, to get temporary relief or pleasure? And that's precisely what sin and worldliness is, right? Seeking temporal and momentary pleasure and relief when we're giving up eternal inheritance and blessing. That's what sin is. And, and here in Genesis 25, he foolishly trades his birthright to his younger brother. And then it wasn't until it came time for that birthright to be cashed in that Esau came to realize his problem. When the consequences came, knocking full bore like a rhino on his face, it's there and then that the tears started flowing. It's there and then that he began to weep. And it says he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So it's that moment that the writer of Hebrews brings us to. It's the moment of what will Esau do now that he recognizes just how foolish and sinful he's been. And Esau became a weeping, repenting, hot mess. However, as Hebrews tells us, his motivation, it makes it very, I think it's very helpful here, to understand what motivated his weeping. What made him to be a hot, weeping mess? It was that he didn't get the blessing. His interests were worldly interests. He failed to get what he really wanted. Esau's grief was rooted and limited to how his sin was making him miserable. How his sin had turned his life into a terrible direction and now left him facing the music he didn't care for. That's what worldly grief is all about. It hates the bed that it made and now needs to sleep in. It hates it. Doesn't embrace it as good or, or a natural and appropriate consequence from the Lord. No, it hates it. It gets hives from it. Grows, breaks out in rashes. So Esau's grief was rooted and limited by that. And notice that for Esau, there was not a concern beyond the things of this world, right? There wasn't this, his, his, uh, his fears and desires, are, they're firmly planted here. His feet were on earth. There were no thoughts of God, no thoughts of God's righteousness or God's judgment. There was no thoughts of his need for the forgiveness that only God can give him. No thought of that. Esau did not hunger and thirst for God. He did not hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. In fact, his own worldly appetites are what got him into the pickle in the first place. His appetite was not for God, for the righteousness of obedience and faith. Worldly grief emotes. It emotes a lot. It feels deeply. And it fixates on our lives being more difficult or unpleasant due to our sin. That's worldly grief. And worldly grief just feels good. It feels right because it seems to interpret my world and my problems correctly. That's because my world is made more difficult by my failures. Therefore, I want to get away from that. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to deal with that. That's unpleasant. That's, that's suffering. That's painful. So worldly grief seems to interpret it correctly, and I end up loathing the fact that I've, I'm being expected to do something about this, this hot mess that I've created, this forest fire that I've started. 
It's just too hard. I can't do it. So I just loop around the whole problem instead of making progress, feeling sorry for my self. And there lies the nut, the, the nugget, the kernel of worldly grief. It's self. Who are we sorry for when we are tripping over our sin in worldly grief? You are sorry for self, just as Esau was sorry for himself. And that is not the sweet sorrow of repentance. There is no heavenly father in worldly grief who is holy and calls us to be holy as he is. There is no victorious savior in worldly grief who spilled his blood to make way of forgiveness, make a way that we might be reconciled to our holy father. There is no Holy Spirit in worldly grief who brings all the provision of power and God's grace to actually bring transformation where I can actually change and grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. There is none of that in worldly grief. I'm not interested in the pain, the suffering, carrying a cross. I want relief. I want my life to be different. I'm not interested about the righteousness of God or the gospel that provides the way forward. Worldly grief, for instance, using a couple examples here. Worldly grief says about pornography, I hate this ugly, shameful thing, while refusing to cut off the sources of access. It hates the cycle of shame and feeling dirty, and ultimately its concerns are more to do with the fact that it makes life more shameful for the sinner than it does about dishonoring a holy God. That's where worldly grief gets stuck. Chapter 7, verse 1, you can turn there again, the chapter where Paul says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That is not worldly grief. The fear of God drives something far deeper to a far sweeter place. Sweet sorrow, repentance. So worldly grief feels hopelessly stuck. Another instance of, of, of struggle, you know, it feels stuck in a cycle of overeating, hating the gross feeling of being overweight while continually falling back into sinful patterns. It feels overwhelmed. Worldly grief stops very short in our struggle with our sin. It stops and gets stuck at the point of fear, at the point of shame, self-loathing and despair. That is worldly grief. It is all consumed with a view of how bad yourself is. And at the end of the day, all you're stuck thinking about is self. Self-loathing. You get so angry and filled with rage about the person you've become. And in that, you are not looking to Christ. You're not fearing God. In that, all we can think about is how miserable our lives have become because of sin. That's worldly grief. Worldly grief leads to condemnation, quickly dissolves into bitterness. The overeating doesn't stop, so I become a slave. I hate myself when I'm becoming. Then that only takes a couple steps before I begin to accuse God for not helping me. That I have tried repenting. Lord, you're not helping me. I'm doing my part. What about yours? Where's the lightning bolt to change me? Now, where's your grace in that? You can see the bitterness will quickly go to accusation of God. And that's precisely where worldly grief keeps us. It sticks us in the mud, dislodgeable, right? Where we're accusing God. And then 
where they're stuck accusing God. And there we are tempted to simply say, because God doesn't help me, I might as well give in to this sin again. And there's you're back at the top of the cycle again. Loopity loop, right? That's a terrible cycle. It's enslaving. It leads to death. Paul tells us that very plainly. Worldly grief leads to death. Godly grief, however, to far better things. So worldly grief moans and cries loudly in despair and bitterness of spirit over the pain and the consequences of my sin. We're like children who loathe our parents' discipline. We fail to see the grace and the love behind their interventions. So worldly grief ends up running away from discipline, hides in this imaginary world of its own making that believes that there are better things that are deserved by them, that they're being prevented from. So they become embittered. And that there's no good or use in enduring hardship. That those things, oh, let's get away. Let's avoid. Let's escape. Let's watch another show. Let's do this. Let's do that. And again, the cycle continues. Holiness is not desirable nor all attainable in that view. Jesus is distant and barely engaged. Barely present. If anything else, he's present to shake his head. Wag his finger. But that is not the truth. That is what the devil's lies and what our own flesh would tell us to keep us in worldly grief. So worldly grief does not lead to repentance. It leads to brokenness, condemnation, and repeating the cycle onward and forever. Worldly grief masquerades as repentance. But lo and behold, it does not. Worldly, it goes right back into worldly desires of fear. So with all that being said, boy, that's some hard stuff, isn't it? With all that being said, let us press on to better grief. And praise God that there's an alternative to that. There's life, there's hope, there's love, there's transformation. There is power, as we sing, in the blood of Jesus that actually results in you taking steps of repentance in godly sorrow. And let's look to that. Pursue the grief. Our second point, pursue the grief that loves the Lord. So let's put aside the grief that just grieves over self and suffering. And rather, let's pursue the grief that loves the Lord. And as much as the worldly grief pretends to be repentance, it's about as insincere and self-promoting as a politician who needs to apologize a couple weeks before November 3. That's worldly grief at its best. It'll own, it'll take responsibility for something, but it's for the wrong purpose. Godly grief, on the other hand, is of a very different sort. There's no masquerading here. No, it's just pure, it's sweet, it's sorrowful repentance that actually produces something good, actually goes somewhere. It has wheels, and it has a highway. It's not a circle. No, it, it goes somewhere. And it goes somewhere beautiful. Let's look again. Verse 10. Look with me. God's words. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Just let that ring out in your mind and your heart right now. The kind of grief that would lead a soul to have no regret to be filled with the joy of salvation and freedom that Jesus promises us. Oh, that's a sweet, sweet sorrow. May the Lord give it to us, that kind of repentance. 
There's no insincerity in godly grief. There's no weeping over the hardship of consequences and failures. Much differently, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is the gold ingot that was promised to us that we must make room for. The gold ingot that it, we do so well to go through the hardship of cleaning out our garages for. Who could resist such a sweet sorrow this morning? Who could resist that? If, if, is our sin so precious in this world, so faithful to its promises, that we would rather commiserate with the devil and become embittered in worldly grief over sin and over our struggles? Would we rather stay there? No. No. Who could not desire a life of ongoing repentance that leads to salvation without regret? Who could resist that? Listen, my garden is very similar to my garage. It's a mess. Got three garden boxes I built for Brenda, and I built them, and I'm not a handy guy, so if any carpenter goes back there, you will scoff and spit on the ground in dismay. They're terrible. They're not, there's nothing square about them. <laughs> but they hold dirt. What's the big deal? That was actually my attitude when I first built them. Like, do I need to measure twice for this? Nah, because it holds dirt. So they're not pretty, and I, I do feel terrible now looking at it, the shame of my immaturity back earlier on, being all handy as a man. But it's a mess. Those three boxes are full of weeds, I think more weeds than actual plants that bear anything. But there is, in, that, in one of those garden boxes, there's this Tabasco pepper plant that is like popping, absolutely popping with a harvest right now. And it's almost ready. It's like probably a week or two away before I'm in Tabasco heaven. Like if you want a pepper, I'm your man. I'll be your man in about a couple weeks. But it's a terrible overgrown mess except for that one plant. And if I were to walk past my garden beds, as crooked and as you know, awful as they may be, and I see that pepper plant, you would say to me, what a fool if I wouldn't take hold of that harvest. You would say to me, what a fool. What a foolish farmer. That he lets his harvest come and the fruits dangling. I mean, it's right there at hand level. I mean, it's, I don't have to like, stoop down or anything. It's right here. You would call me a lazy fool if I wouldn't simply take care and, and grab that harvest and make it my own. And that's precisely what repentance is. These are our fruits for the picking. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So godly grief, my brothers and my sisters, it's godly. It's Godward. It is looking toward God. It's a grief that's primarily concerned with what God thinks and says about my sin. About my sinful behaviors. As King David pronounces in Psalm 51 verse 4, you may know this well, against you, David says, against you, God, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Our concern in godly sorrow and godly grief is that God has been sinned against and that he has richly and powerfully provided for us the way of forgiveness and of total transformation through his son and through the Holy Spirit who he gives pours out upon us. This is what godly grief is concerned about. It's the righteousness of God. And it rests in what God has provided for us. He gives us 
his righteousness. And he then calls us to make progress in it through his mercy. It's amazing. It's the gospel. And for the godly griever, the person who's grieving in godly desire, they count the pain and the troubles of taking the brunt of their consequences, of owning their shame and taking full responsibility for their sins. They take those things as worthwhile grievances. Why? Because God is worth it. Jesus is worth the trouble of your repentance, of your shame, of you taking full responsibility in the sight of a holy God to receive the grace and the kindness of repentance. That you would walk that out with godly grief that leads to repentance, right? To salvation without regret. That it is a worthwhile inconvenience. It is a worthwhile humiliation for us to endure because we're taking steps of repentance with godly grief. It leads to salvation without regret. We do it for the sake of Christ and our joy in him. That is godly sorrow. Is that you repent for the sake of Jesus Christ and for your joy in him. That is why we take this up. That's why we keep doing it day after day. So the shame of confession and humiliation before God, looking at the awful truth about ourselves and our sinful fears and desires or our temptation to avoid things, it's that freedom and the path to greater joy in Jesus Christ that is represented in our repentance, godly grief, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Godly grief is the path of no regret, no condemnation, No lack of resource from God. No lack of mercy and no lack of pardon for sin. No, God has promised if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we walk in the confession, the repentance of our sins and godly grief, God will meet us. He will not oppose us. So I ask you, I must ask you, how are you repenting? What is your repentance like? Like when you ask the Lord for forgiveness, what does that sound like in your heart? What are you asking for and why? What motivates you in those moments? Are you repenting often, even daily of your sins? How sincere is your grief before God? Would your loved ones know you to be someone who easily repents and makes wrongs right when you have sinned against them? Or are you someone who never brings it up again? What do you say whenever you're caught in sin? You can easily spot godly grief because it's primarily concerned with God. It takes very seriously the name and righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it is saddened because sin dishonors God. You can easily spot godly grief because it's driven by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness to be, make faithful progress. In obedience, a desire to know and to love Jesus more and to be made more in his likeness, to bear actual fruit and replace the awful worldly desires with righteous ones. You can easily spot godly grief because it animates and empowers our progress. It leads to the desire to fulfill our responsibilities, not put them off. Worldly grief leads to the kind of giving up It leads to 
wallowing in sorrow and becoming unmotivated. Those are signs of worldly grief. Sign of godly grief is we're animated, empowered. You can easily spot godly grief because it pursues reconciliation with the Lord and with other people. Immediately, as quickly as possible. It doesn't settle with ceasefire treaties. It doesn't try to escape the problem. It doesn't go about strategizing how to avoid this person. No. A godly sorrow, godly grief rushes into the fire that it, that it started. Worldly grief escapes the fires. It runs off. It fears them. It fears that it'll kill them. Godly grief recognizes, actually, that, that fire will actually help me, will actually grow me, and I need to do this for the sake of Christ, and I need to do this to help reconcile with this brother who I sinned against. So godly grief runs to the fire. Do you run into fires? That's a question. Do we run into fires that we have started? I would urge you, if that is not your pattern, that you are walking in worldly grief. Your interests are not the the Lord's interests. Your interests are the world's interests, your own interests. Would you be a man of God, a woman of God, who rushes headlong into the fire that that you started to deal with it, to own it, to take full responsibility in, in the sight of God for the sake of Christ? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So where do we go from here? What if our repentance is either severely lacking or just stuck out in the rain? No hope of progress in view. I think for for change to happen, it's not theological uh, rocket science. It's not something well beyond us. This is not a special knowledge situation that only a few people can have access to. This is not a lightning bolt that you got to wait on top of a hill with a metal spiritual pole for the Lord to shock you. No, this is not rocket science, people of God. This is scripture truth, and it is for us. It is by God's grace. It is for us. So what do we do? I think Luke 18, verse 13, the cry of the tax collector more or less captures what we're supposed to do about this. If you find your your repentance is severely lacking or it is worldly, I would urge you to read this this parable that that, uh, Jesus teaches in Luke 18. And and the the tax collector, if you remember, he stands afar from the, the altar of God, and he cries out these simple words. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer could not be more simple. It could not be more clear. This man was very self-aware of his problem, very aware of his need, right? And he was also at the same time very aware of God, God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's propensity to give mercy to those who cry out for it. That's the story there. And that's such a simple helpful illustration. So when we're stuck in a sin pattern and our repentance is not working, it's not helping, come to Jesus in the same way the tax collector threw himself before God. Come. That's the command of the Lord. Come. And as you come, that you would just, with all of your heart, as the tax collector did, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It can't be any more simple than that. Couldn't be simpler. If you would grow as a Christian, we must do what is commanded of us in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us, Jesus himself teaches us, that we should seek 
his forgiveness. Ask for his forgiveness, even as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And by implication, that is an ongoing, even daily activity that our sins and our burdens, our struggles need to be repented of. We need to repent. And we do so by simply following the tax collector's example, God, be merciful to me as a sinner. Oh, Lord. So come, come to Jesus in that way. And then you do well by turning to those you've sinned against and confess your sin to them. Specifically, by saying something to the effect of, please forgive me, I was wrong to treat you this way. And here's why that was wrong. That that would become the way that husbands and wives actually talk to each other about your sin. Confess. Repent. And through that, you will see grace. You will see forgiveness. You will see actual progress as you come to Jesus. Quite simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For our lives to be repenting lives, for our marriages to be repenting marriages, for in godly grief there is repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So, is godly grief and repentance a regular, even daily part of your life? If so, we do well. We do well. I close with this as John and the worship team come back. If we do, if we do, we are doing well. That this is a regular reaction to our sins, regular reaction, that we're grieving in godly sorrow. And the Lord promises to help us in our progress in holiness, that we would bring to completion the, by the fear of the Lord, holiness. So if our godly grief and repentance are irregular, if it has become irregular for you, not one of us should be surprised that we have become heavy laden, bogged down by increasing guilt, and that our Christian walk is one that is more measured by joylessness than it is by joy of salvation. More measured by distance from God and Christ than it is by nearness to the Lord. Who would, uh, who would not want to be near to God? Who would not want to walk in fellowship, communion with Jesus? Well, then let us grieve as those who are godly. The makings of joylessness and despair come by our failure to grieve over our sin for the right reason. Even so, come. That's the command of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why don't we stand together and sing the praise? For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.